I was just going to say, we didn't highlight the themes that we were going to cover today. We kind of did, but I wanted to call them out specifically. Yeah. Um, but I don't want to interrupt your timeline if you weren't finished. I would suggest, though, that maybe we, at the end, record a little bit and I can put it in at the beginning. Okay. Okay, perfect. Let's do that. How the sausage is made. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm, like, keeping all cutting. of this in. All of that. <laughs> Don't say sausage to me ever again. <laughs> Welcome to Reader's Digress, the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to unless you would like to. <laughs> My name is Kate Kiriakou. And I am Molly Fox. And we are back today to finish discussing the book Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation by Kristen Cobes Dumay. We believe that is how you say her name. Kristen, we're sorry <laughs> if it's wrong. Sorry, Kristen. <laughs> uh, we will continue just calling her Kristen to avoid any mistakes. As another white woman with an e- quote-unquote easy first name and a hard last name for people to pronounce, I feel a kinship <laughs> with this. So, Kristen, mm-hmm. you can just call me Kate when you talk about me inevitably on your podcast. <laughs> When we are famous. Obviously, anyway. I'm also going to write a book that she will need to talk about <laughs> with her best friend. <laughs> I believe it could happen, Kate. Um, you are talented and smart, so <laughs> don't. Not outside the realm of possibility. This is the podcast where my best friend gives me a pep talk. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> the pep talk is just stop sweating, you stupid bitch. <laughs> Thanks, 30 Rock. We have to cite it every time we quote it because it's going to happen a lot. (laughs) So I think today we're going to start with a brief timeline for you all. Uh, Kate did a good job of breaking down the progression that Kristen breaks down in her book. Kate just made a like. (laughs) I'm like, well, good is a a relative term, but I'm going to try my hardest. Um, Yeah, so that you get a general idea of like how this progress through time to end up where we are today. So we're going to start with that and then we'll see where it goes. It'll probably end up with me yelling about something as it's bound to always be the case. (laughs) Uh, That is why we started the podcast. So it's really (laughs) fine. So I thought it would be good to just lay out a timeline for this book because It is written in chronological order, and while there are a lot of different factors that are working at the same time, I still think that it's helpful to kind of break it up by decade, I suppose. Um, Or at least that is how my mind found it useful to analyze. This book more or less starts in the 1950s, but I think pretty much the only thing that's important to talk about in the 1950s in terms of this book is the fear of communism, which... comes to rise during that period so the red scare was happening during this time there was a huge fear of communism because communism equaled evil and equaled Mm -hmm. terrible things and was in essence just anti-american in every way and that's how all americans were being were perceiving communism at the time Well, and it is antithetical to capitalism. So while I don't agree with all of the like Red Scare stuff, it makes sense that you would 
fear the thing that is opposite from your way of life that is and it's not even just like opposite it's like it's directly opposed to what your way of life mm-hmm. so I, the like fear makes sense in that way but it obviously was like it became this like entity that communism is not like evil embodied but that's how it was perceived yeah and i think that one of the things that i think about in terms of these large either philosophical or governing ideologies is that nothing in and of itself usually is that evil aside from things like racism misogyny uh things that are specifically prejudiced against people but i don't think there's anything inherently bad about christianity or about communism or about capitalism Mm -hmm. necessarily um but it's important to (laughs) contextualize all of those things and understand that there may be pros and cons to everything just like there is in everything that we talk about in life right right so that is the first thing that she brings up i think in the 50s in the 60s -hmm. we get to uh the backlash to kennedy uh in addition to social change and Uh, The fear of communism continues to be ramped up. The social change Mm -hmm. obviously refers to a lot of different things that were happening throughout the 60s and 70s, including feminism and the sexual revolution, hippie culture. I don't even know if Mm -hmm. that's what you call it, but that's what I'm going to call it, hippie culture. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) we all know what that means, so it's good. (laughs) And uh, so there's a huge backlash to that in the evangelical movement. That leads us into the 1970s where Carter was president and there was a lot of disappointment in the Mm -hmm. evangelical movement to Carter because they perceived him as being a wimp and Mm -hmm. a disappointment to their cause instead of being the champion that they really had hoped that he would be. Uh, They Mm -hmm. really criticized the Carter administration for siding with feminists and for, (laughs) quote, wooing the homosexual vote unquote whatever uh, that means <laughs> i would love to woo a homosexual <laughs> saying back at that back then being like you know what gay people are people was what was considered wooing the homosexual vote so like okay how about just even gay people exist at all like <laughs> <laughs> yeah being gay isn't a, a mental disease <laughs> So, <laughs> in addition to the backlash to Carter, there's also mm-hmm. an understand a growing understanding of the military as a bulwark to evil, i.e., yeah, foreign adversaries, uh, which directly ties into the Vietnam War, which is happening throughout the '70s and is a right. very contentious issue in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also one that I did not learn about in history class. Ever. I literally never learned about the Vietnam War. It was not until graduate school that I started, like, reading anything about the Vietnam War, which is insane. You know, the most I know about the Vietnam War, I learned from the TV show MASH. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, hi. Sorry. I just have to interrupt myself to correct myself about the fact that MASH is about the Korean War not the Vietnam War. So let the record show that I know nothing about either the Korean or the Vietnam War, and I would like to continue blaming the American education system for that. Thank you very much. And 
I literally have never learned about it in school. Not in high school, not in college, not in grad school. What the fuck? I mean, I went to grad school for, like, <laughs> art, so I guess that's part of it. But. Um, but there was so much art being made in the 60s and 70s uh, that we talk true. about, and that's no true. one ever really contextualized it with the arguments for that's and true. against the Vietnam War. That's very true. In high school, I like my history class would always start with like the revolutionary war and then we would only get into like i don't know the civil war and then it would start (laughs) over again the next year and it was like the teachers never figured out that like we've been doing the same thing every year and we never get further because the year is only as long as the year is and why can't you start from where you left off last time it never happened though so i have like a chunk of history in America and the world that I've never (laughs) learned about in class because it was never like no one could figure out that like we need to start where we stopped last year yeah that is also my recollection of all my history classes and even the ones that were supposed to be about world history really just focused on the two world America's role in the yeah Yeah. it was always like America is the good guy we saved everybody I remember, like, growing up, I always had this impression that, like, wow, we're, like, really good at things because we just, like, always win every war <laughs> and we're always, like, morally superior to everyone. We've really, like, saved everyone's ass. And that is, that is like, the argument that she's making in this book is that that is the, like, myth of America is that we were always the good guys, that, like, war was, like, valuable and protective and it... I'm not saying that there was never time like us getting involved in World War II I think was necessary and we did we did help and we helped to like bring it to an end but it's not like we the the sacrifice that Europe made to win that war is far and above what we did to end it and I don't know why I'm yelling about this this is not what this episode is what am I talking about okay make me stop okay no I was I was just going to connect this back to the book which is that the entire idea of make America great again is based on the idea that we were in the 50s a super powerhouse country in which Mm -hmm. everything was perfect and our moral values aligned with our family values which aligned with our white values women didn't take birth control yeah people were all white and men like could work one job was white apparently no 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 people who weren't white existed it was perfect back then just didn't exist so stupid that i that concept has always frustrated me for that reason like make america great again which mythical era are you thinking of? Oh, no, exactly. Mm. It's like, so I'm sorry, are we talking about the progressive era where we had kids working in factories? Are we talking about mm. before that where we had uh, Native Americans being killed? Are we talking about slavery? Are we talking about, right. I mean, there's just. Yeah. Are we yeah. talking about when we first, uh, white people first arrived here and spread disease to the Native people and let them all die? Like, I know that they didn't do that on purpose, but they also didn't try to be better. So, <laughs> But also, I think there are accounts of some people doing it knowingly. That's true. That is true. So I don't, I don't know. Anyway, none of this episode point. is about Continue um, with things. the timeline. This is Jesus why we named Christ. our podcast Readers Digress. Readers Digress. <laughs> For a good Ugh. reason. Okay, so. Yeah. Back to the 1980s. The 1980s is when evangelicals finally became major players in politics, I would say. In this book, she writes about evangelical leaders 
telling their followers that they didn't necessarily need to be involved in politics in the 1950s and 60s. There wasn't a huge Mm -hmm. push for evangelicals to be that involved in worldly matters. But in the 1980s, that gets almost entirely reversed. And by the 1980s, when Reagan is running for office, Mm -hmm. it is integral to the evangelical identity that you are voting based on your conscious belief Mm -hmm. system as it relates to evangelicalism yeah yeah that it we talked about this a bit last time and we will talk about it more but once the republican party realized that they had such a large group of people under one umbrella called evangelicalism that over time through consumer culture and capitalism, et cetera, became homogenized into a very similar group, even though they did have differing beliefs. The Republican Party realized that if they aligned themselves with that belief platform, then they could win elections. And that is what, that is what Reagan did. Um, they, Kristen mentions in the book that Reagan was like a, he was a fairly liberal governor in California when, right. Is that right? Did I just like completely imagine he was the governor of California? <laughs> You're like, wait, am I thinking of Arnold Schwarzenegger? <laughs> Literally. That's what I'm afraid I just did. He was right. He was. Have I lost my mind. He didn't go from being an actor to being the president. Wait, wait, Correct. should like, we, there re- was some... should we record both versions? Me of saying he was and me of saying he wasn't. We'll look it up. <laughs> later <laughs> we just need the narrator voice to come in and be like he wasn't the governor of california <laughs> he wasn't okay hold on oh my god i just looked up regent <laughs> i'm so frazzled <laughs> oh my god okay let's go to reagan's wikipedia yes, yes. He, he was the governor of california i okay. the only reason i was hesitating because i was like wait a minute was he actually a senator from california but no, he was the governor. Oh, right. Okay. So we have Reagan, who was the governor of California, supporting an abortion bill at the time. And, and he was supportive of other liberal things. But when he was run, running for president as a Republican, he realized that in order to, like, woo the evangelicals, to borrow a phrase, then <laughs> he had to, like, get on board with, the, like, the family value stuff and, like, hate gay people you know we all aren't aware of reagan's like war against homosexuality i.e the aids crisis so yeah he he realized that in order to win his election he had to like hop on that ship yeah absolutely i had written that evangelicals aligned with reagan over racism national security and the start of the cultural wars which Mm -hmm. is intertwined with a rugged individualism idea of politics and definitely is the start of those clashes in things like you know gay marriage abortion um yeah what i would just call civil rights uh (laughs) right right yeah right human human rights you know that sort of thing Uh, and i will note that at the end of the 80s reagan actually did not need the evangelical vote to win a second term and i think that that's pretty important to this story because evangelicals started to feel like their power was slipping away just a little bit because it wasn't they weren't the only reason that Reagan was reelected. He was reelected in a landslide. And so 
they started yeah. to feel like, well, maybe we're not as important to this movement as we thought. And so we need to make some adjustments to get some of that power back. Well, and I think that they had complaints about Reagan. Like they were frustrated with some of the administration's choices, which in part is why Clinton was able to win the next election because there was enough evangelicals who were frustrated, disenfranchised with the Republican choices. And then, you know, you know how elections go, but like they did have this moment of like, wait a minute, do we have as much influence as we thought? And then that was further reiterated to them when Clinton won the presidency. And he was like, he was a Southern Baptist, but he was like, not at all what they wanted. And Clinton was, or Hillary is who I meant by Clinton that time. (laughs) 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 Whatever. Hillary was so like, uh, awful to them as this like career woman who made a joke about like not staying home to bake. Uh, and so (laughs) they like, they definitely had this like identity crisis after that for sure with, feeling like they didn't have as much influence over politics anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And getting into the 1990s with the Clintons, there was, as you mentioned, a huge hatred of Hillary as a working woman, as in uh, self-described feminist. And it is astounding to me that at one point in the book, they talked about how Hillary had published a book called It Takes a Village, which was describing how Mm. forces beyond the immediate family impacted the well-being of the nation's children, which I, in my mind, can't understand how anyone would be opposed to that that or disagree with that because it just seems like common sense. Obviously, the things outside your household have an influence on your children. I mean, what you you can't raise somebody in a bunker and expect them to not pick Mm. up on any cultural clues at all. Uh, But aside from that, (laughs) um, that was something that was a huge issue. And, you know, a lot of this is, again, going back to these culture wars, that there's a fear that the government is coming into your household and taking over and that you as a parent will have no authority to say or do or raise your children how you wish. Yeah. Yeah. Which the thing about that that is so confusing to me is how, uh, yes, I think especially starting in like the eighties and nineties that like sentiment ramped up. It's, you see a lot more people homeschooling their kids, like Christian people, I mean, and in general. And I think a lot of it is based in this fear of like, well, we can't control what's going on in the public schools. We have no influence over like the, the public discourse. And so we have to protect and insulate our children from that. But there's such a viciousness from that side when it comes to like pushing their agenda into the public discourse. They they don't want a separation of church and state. They want the church to be fully influencing the state And yet they are the ones who are constantly clamoring about not wanting the government inside their children's brains and like not to push the like liberal agenda into their kids' brains. But it's like, but you want to push the conservative agenda onto everyone. Right. Like, how can you not see the hypocrisy of that? I I think liberals for the most part are like, can we just give everybody all the information that there is? And conservatives are like, no, we will only give them one bit of information. (laughs) And not to put too fine a point on it, but that is because because it is a cult and they won't want you to have the information available to you if they want you to believe one thing only and not think your own thoughts. End of <laughs> TED Talk. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, it's much easier to prevent someone from questioning something in your doctrine if they are not presented with opposing information. I think that's pretty obvious, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. One thing I would like to point out about the 1990s that I found really interesting is that with this hatred of the Clintons, there's also a simultaneous rise of what she refers to as soft patriarchy groups in evangelicalism that Mm -hmm. then receives a really harsh backlash in the 2000s. And an example of this is the Promise Keepers, which we can talk about more later because I think there's a lot there. But um, just to finish up my timeline and go a little bit faster through this, uh, (laughs) in the 2000s, obviously, George W. Bush is the president in the wake of 9-11, there is the war on terror, and there is finally another enemy to reunite behind, which we talked mm-hmm. about a little bit in our last episode. There's a huge emphasis on ramped up militaristic masculinity, which is not a real mm-hmm. term. I just kind of am referring to it as that. <laughs> and a yeah. backlash to the pussified America as reasserting Ugh. this shock masculinity and just t- saying things that are going to yield the harshest response in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Then in the 2010s, well, really in 2008, leading into the 2010s, there's uh, Obama who becomes becomes elected president and is obviously (laughs) treated terribly. There is the uh, birtherism movement, which is just a racist movement to assert that he doesn't belong in the presidency because he doesn't have a white enough skin tone. You know, that argument, sorry to interrupt you. I was no, going to no. say that argument has literally never made sense to me because you are allowed to be the president of the United States, even if you weren't born in the United States, you just have to have lived here for a certain amount of time. It's why like military kids, if you're born in Germany or something, you can still be the American president, as long as you are a citizen and you've lived here for, I think it's like 30 years or something like that. I don't know. I made that up, but you know what I mean? It's like at the heart of the argument, the reason why they're questioning his legitimacy as the president doesn't make any fucking sense. It's so stupid. That's because it's just racism. It's truly just just because it's literally made up. Yeah, I know. But it makes me so mad. Yeah, as it should. I mean, an example of somebody who was not born in the United States is Ted Cruz, actually. (laughs) He was born in Canada. Uh, Obviously, he was born on a military base, but even still, like, it you know, the rules aren't exactly that you have to be born in the continental United States or something like that. It's, that's not how it works. Yeah. I think we perceived Obama's presidency, a lot of us, as this, like, step forward. Um, And it was, obviously, for many reasons. But I think the sense of hope it gave a lot of people made it easier to overlook the clear rot that was still under the surface in the country and to to hope that we could just move past it instead of having to actually face it. Yeah, and I think Tanahasi Coates had a wonderful article after President Trump was elected in 2016 mm-hmm. in the Atlantic and the title of the article if I recall correctly was the first white president. And in the article mm-hmm. his argument 
essentially is that, which is that with every step of progress, there's an equal and sometimes even greater backlash to that progress. And that's what Trumpism, I think that's the legacy of Trumpism, is that it is the greatest backlash to the greatest progress so far, potentially, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, not, not the greatest progress, that, but you know what I mean. No, no, but I, I don't, I do know what you mean. Like that was a huge step and we had a huge step, a bigger step backwards basically from it. And I, I think that, that what's so disheartening is that our country continues to refuse to learn the lesson that we cannot heal and move on from a, we can call it a sin unless we repent from that sin. Like you and 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 repair the damage that was done you can't fix the wounds of slavery by being like it's in the past let's move on no that is not how it works you have to accept the the responsibility and the damage and try to repair it and and acknowledge it the way like post-war germany acknowledged the horror of nazism and repaired the damage of that and like paid the price they paid the fucking price and the states have never like taken the onus to pay the price for the sins that they committed when starting their country yeah and it's only relevant as with everything in this movement and in conservative thought in general (laughs) when it doesn't apply to them in a favorable way right like they only care about free speech when they're being kicked off twitter (laughs) they don't give (laughs) a single shit about free speech when it comes to black or brown people so it's very very selective in who everything applies to and they feel that they are the gatekeepers of all of that Mm -hmm. yeah and it's like it's weird how it's cancel culture if donald trump gets kicked off of twitter but it's not cancel culture to like try to murder u.s senators like (laughs) what Trying to overturn an election that was free and fair through violence is the biggest cancel culture move I've ever heard of, actually. (laughs) Cancel culture isn't real. I don't know. That term is literally meaningless because it's been used to describe things that have nothing to do with one another. And as everyone has talked about on Twitter a lot, there is a difference (laughs) between being given free speech and having to face your consequences for said free speech. If you want to say something racist or sexist, you can't demand that people respond to that in a favorable light. That's just not how it works. If you want to say something that's terrible about somebody else, then you do have to face the consequences for your actions and you can't mm-hmm. force people to be like, yeah, racism. Like, <laughs> well, and it's not just like what happened with Donald Trump. The argument they're making is that he, because of his lies and because of the terrible things he said, which he technically does have the right to say, people were hurt and some people were killed. And that you can't get out of. Like, you were a part of that cause. And so you do have a consequence to that action. So it that's like... Yes, you still have free speech, but if your free speech causes someone to murder someone else and you had a direct hand in that, well, then you have to be held accountable for that action. Like, that's yes. not... I mean, the classic example <sighs> that everyone gives is that you have free speech, but you can't run into a crowded movie theater and yell fire. Well, 
Yeah, so you can't incite panic with your free speech with no evidence to back it up, and you can't incite violence against specific other people. For example, your vice president, Mike Pence, who you told people that the reason you were not still going to be president, it was his fault. He was the reason for that. It's not at all. But, I mean, not that I'm defending... I almost said Ted Cruz. Not that I'm defending Ted Cruz or Mike Pence, but (laughs) it was not like up to either of them whether or not the like election could be turned over. What they didn't have the power to do that in and of themselves. No, because there was no fraud in the election. (laughs) So that pretty much sums it up. (laughs) Um, So obviously, with Obama, there was a ton of fear around his presidency and. I think something that she points out in this book that is a good framework for looking at it is that they felt threatened by Obama and his family and his presence in the White House. And Mm -hmm. they felt that that threatened their way of life, which is nonsensical, but that is how they thought about it. Uh, And so just to finish up my timeline, (laughs) 50 minutes (laughs) later, um, in 2020, I would say throughout the 2010s, there's a resurgence in these culture wars, but they come out in somewhat different ways. So obviously Mm -hmm. we have the legalization of gay marriage. We have a lot more uh, trans rights being talked about in our national discussion. Uh, In addition to the ever-present things like abortion, which has been talked about since Roe v. Wade. Forever. Um. So in 2016, she writes that what evangelicals were looking for was a really tough president that had a huge emphasis on masculinity and rugged, toxic performativity of that masculinity. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so it is not at all a surprise that evangelicals were attracted to Trump because it's more or less what they were trained to be attracted to. Yeah, and I I don't know that she calls this out specifically, but part of what was so attractive to Trump to evangelicals and conservatives in general was his willingness to say um, politically incorrect things, quote unquote, because evangelicals have politically incorrect, I'm using air quotes, stances on many of their beliefs. They are anti-gay, they are anti-abortion, they are anti-trans, and they're often very anti-women's rights. They, they like curb that to a certain extent. Most of them are like, yeah, women should be able to vote, but it's still a patriarchal formula. And those are all becoming more and less and less popular stances in the public discourse. And so the, like talking about gay being a sin, that is no longer an okay thing to do. And that is the threat they're feeling that they're going to start facing persecution, the persecution that they've been inflicting on other people for years, I might add, but they're realizing that like people aren't accepting of their stance anymore. And they're being critiqued rightfully so for having an opinion, not just that they hold in their own lives, but that they wish to apply to other people's lives. And so to have Trump come up onto the stage and be like, he didn't say fuck gay people, but he has said, <laughs> are we sure he said a lot of shit? <laughs> he has like done everything to make evangelicals feel like they had a safe space to be just as hateful as they have always longed to be. And I, that was a very 
harsh statement, I can hear the critique in my mind coming in already. Like evangelicals do not see themselves as hateful. They see themselves as loving and accepting. And it's actually the liberals who aren't tolerant, but I know that to be false. Um, they are, they are unwilling to accept any other worldview, but their own so much so that they will call you evil and like wage a war against you Muslims to, to fight back your way of life. Yeah, and just because something is not actually going to harm you does not mean that the knee-jerk reaction of fear is not real. And so it is very... Uh, you you can understand where someone is coming from without excusing their behavior. And I think that when we look at the evangelical movement, we can understand that as white evangelical men are losing a lot of power or perceive that they're losing a lot of power in the world, they can't Mm -hmm. just say whatever they want. They can't just do whatever they want, et cetera. You know, that fear of losing power and also potentially not understanding exactly where your place is in the social structure right now may be real, but that doesn't mean that number one, the way that they've responded to it is appropriate. And number two, it doesn't give you the right to just act on that fear however you please, because those are very different things. Yeah. I think the reason evangelical white men struggle so much to deal with that fear is because they've never been taught to understand someone else's experience. They are taught that their experience is the correct one. And so they, they don't exercise the muscle to put themselves in someone else's shoes very often. And if you're able to do that, then you can start to empathize with like, Oh, this fear that I'm experiencing is what Brown people have felt forever. This is what women have felt forever. Like, Holy shit. This Except theirs good. was real. Something. <laughs> Yeah, yes, exactly. It's like, okay, your fear, although the feeling is valid, the source of the fear is imagined. Like, but if if they had the empathetic ability and that had been encouraged in them through their worldview and doctrine, I think that this backlash would be much less because they'd be willing to realize that like, okay, I'm having a super negative experience because I feel displaced in the world, but that is the experience that most other people have all the time. So what can we do to like give everyone more space instead of me pushing those people back away and trying to take the space back for myself? Like that is a very unempathetic response to fear. And that is part of the reason I come at this with such like a a harshness sometimes because they are not willing to extend empathy to other people. And yet their entire thing is that they're like empathetic, good Christian souls. And it makes me obviously so mad. (laughs) Live, laugh, love. (laughs) (laughs) So throw yourself into traffic. (laughs) Okay. So uh, let's switch gears. I, I think that that timeline is hopefully helpful for just giving you a very broad overview of the political situation that's happening in response to all of these evangelical twists and turns in their history. But I also want to make sure that we talk about popular culture. So, Molly, I am handing it over to you to start us off because I need to talk about VeggieTales. Oh my god, <laughs> Veggie Tales. I could still sing all those songs, unfortunately. Um, so I I did write a, f- a lot of notes about that same thing that Kate just went through, like the timeline, the way the, po- the political structures 
intertwined with the evangelical structures as we move through time. And in large part, that is how Kristen organizes the, the flow of the book. And I think it's a really careful handling of a very nuanced and broad subject. Um, but we did just talk about that a lot. So I will try to move on to some other topics. Um, one of the things that I fell deep down into when we started, uh, when I started writing notes about like the culture of evangelicalism was this something that I remembered from like the early, well, not early nineties. I was born in 91. So like, I don't remember anything from the early nineties, but it was like the late nineties, early two thousands. And it was a Christian diet weight loss plan called the way down workshop. I'm rolling my eyes really hard for everyone who's listening to this. <sighs> Essentially, the like belief was fat people are inherently sinful, similar to like gayness is inherently sinful <sighs> because it's a sign of like your inability to have self control, which is a fruit of the spirit. Like a a, <laughs> it's something that you should develop if you're a follower of Christ. And so, if you're a fat person, obviously you don't have self control, and therefore you're sinning. Oh, um, obviously, because there can be no other explanation than just binge eating. <laughs> binge eating. Uh, is this theologically sound? Absolutely not. Did it fit into the theology and culture of evangelicalism of the 90s and 2000s? Yes, 100%. And the reason I'm, I'm going to talk about this in a sec, but first I'm going to explain why. So as we have discussed, Kristen has made it clear that the swell of culture that starts in the 60s and goes through into the 2000s is part of what the evangelicals like rode this wave of cultural transition transitions in the country. And as uh, Christian booksellers and pastors started to build bigger and bigger followings, they were able to disseminate the same messages to larger and larger groups of people, thereby binding them all into a group under the umbrella of evangelicalism, even if one church believed somewhat disparate things from another church. So before evangelicalism took off in that way and it was culturally homogenous, there were tons and tons of like, there, there's the Baptist, there was the Reformed Baptist, there was the uh, Episcopalians, there is like the second coming of the third church of Christ. Like there's a million and they all still have those names, but a lot of them have coalesced under that header of um, evangelical to to build stronger ties with each other. And that's how they have essentially more cultural power because they're such a large body that whether they believe the same things really or not, they, they perceive themselves to. It's kind of that thing of like, um, like I think so many Americans consider themselves Christians, even if they have like vastly different worldviews. Mm -hmm. So this is the reason the cultural aspects of things are important. And one of my favorite examples of the culture of evangelicalism that is entrenched in capitalism and consumption is the way down workshop. Um, it's this hilarious, like ugh, starve yourself to death for Jesus weight loss plan by a woman named Gwen Shamblin. And the reason I know about this is because uh, my mom started she watched all the videos. My mom has always been like a very slender woman. So I have no idea why she felt she needed to like do this. And the, essentially the, the weight loss plan is eat whatever you want, but cut everything in half. 
So, like, if you go to a restaurant, you get a hamburger. <laughs> That's the plan? Oh, my God. I so was not prepared. That's so stupid. It's They're so, just so telling stupid. you to, to incrementally inch closer to anorexia. That's not a weight yeah. loss plan. Are you yes. kidding me? That's yes. so unhealthy. The, at, at, at one end of the spectrum, it's like, you just need to eat less. Which, okay, I... I'm not going to get into how much I fucking hate diet culture on every level, but you are correct. If you want to lose weight, one of the ways to do that is to eat less food. But you're right, Kate, that it inches closer and closer each time to like anorexia, because as you watch the videos, you realize that what she's saying isn't just like order a hamburger and cut the hamburger in half. What she's saying is like, don't eat again until you are physically ravenous. And she keeps pushing the line. And in the early ones in the 90s and 2000s, they were pretty like, you know, don't eat again until your stomach growls. And then you like have the physical sign that you're hungry again, and then you should eat some more. But I watched some that are more recent, like 2018. And she's basically like, she looks like a skeleton now. She's looking crazier and crazier because she's been starving herself for 20 years. And she's essentially like, deprive yourself for Jesus. Starve yourself until you can't think straight. And once you feel that, like, hollowness inside your soul, then you should maybe have an ice cube. Oh, my God. I'm, <laughs> I'm exaggerating this for comedic effect, but that is a but lot of the undertones of this. Yeah. And, okay, my mom started teaching these classes. It became, like, a women's Bible study group thing because all of it was, like, instead of focusing on food, focus on Jesus. When you want to eat for fun pray about it it was all like instead of eating have a devotional so the, the two become entwined with each other in a way that makes it impossible to just be like i'm overweight it's like i'm a sinful wretched failure and god doesn't love me because i'm overweight and you can't get the two out from each other wow this is so disturbing i know nothing about this very this subculture and so i don't even know if you would call it that but this specific uh, mm, i yeah. think so uh, subculture is good this is just horrifying on every level because yeah. you're not just and i think that this actually dovetails pretty well with how americans view people who are overweight and how i guess most of the world maybe i don't know i probably can't make yeah. that judgment but american culture certainly do it make that judgment <laughs> i'm gonna make the <laughs> generalization i can um <laughs> <laughs> the universe. That's never gone wrong. So I think uh, Americans definitely view people who are overweight as lazy and inherently bad. Yeah. And so yeah. that is pretty much exactly what you're saying, except it's being translated into your spiritual worthiness. And so yes, it, it becomes a moral failure. Right. Uh, which obviously the, that's all insane and terrible. Yeah. And that doesn't. Yes. Help anybody actually be healthier if, in fact, that's what they're trying to do. And it also doesn't help yeah. anyone be more godly if that's what they're trying to do. Exactly. But the, the reason this is such a good case study of, like, the culture of evangelicalism is because it, it shows the way evangelicalism found a way to attach itself to every aspect of life. It was not just, like, I go to church on Sundays. It was woven through the fabric of every single thing that we did and and experienced as human beings every single thing had to be tied back to jesus mm -hmm. and the church and the last thing i'll say about the way down workshop is that 
in the late 90s, I think early 2000s, when my mom was teaching this class, it's she stopped teaching it and like it disbanded from our evangelical church because news came out that Gwen Chamblin, the woman who founded this, didn't believe in the Trinity, which is the the Trinity is I'm the sorry, what? That, that, that God, she didn't Spirit, actually believe in God. <laughs> yeah okay she believes in she believes in god but she didn't believe that jesus christ the holy spirit and god were three in one that's what the trinity means and that jesus and the holy spirit had the same powers as god which is the magical thinking of evangelicals and catholicism and and most most of christianity believes in the trinity i don't know if any yes does any christian sect not believe in the trinity that's kind of no, I think they all, it's, it's very it's like a central big. part to a the doctrine, I feel like. Yeah. But she, it was funny because she wasn't even like, I don't believe in Jesus or I don't believe in God. It was like, no, no, Jesus was God's son. But there's just like, the, she doubled down on the patriarchy. That's the funny part. She was like, no, no, God's the head of Jesus. He's his dad. And Jesus has to follow what God dad says. And then all the patriarchal evangelicals were like, hey. That's too far for us, bitch. You can starve yourself to death, but don't start talking about theology because that is crossing the line. And and so it became this whole big like schism in the church. And it was like, well, we can't teach this anymore because this woman isn't theologically sound and therefore the whole thing falls apart. And it's like, okay. I, Which I don't, is frankly I don't hilarious think... considering what you said earlier about how theology always came second to the overall culture of evangelicalism anyway. Yeah, it. so there's all these contradictions that you find that are just like, okay, so we're clearly just making this up as we go along. And yes, that's <laughs> the answer. Um, but it, it has ramifications for people. Like, it, because you you put a lot of stock in something because you believe it's theologically sound and you can trust it. And then you find out that like, oh, this woman's actually... So it makes sense to walk away from a doctrine that is taught by a woman who is unhinged and and telling you to starve yourself. But the reason it's damaging is because we put all this stock in evangelical things before we actually vet what the thing is. And we believe that it's good because this person is evangelical and and so it's fine. And, And you see that over and over again when she, Kristen, highlights like the sex scandals that she talks about in the later part of the book that pastors and youth pastors and all these people have so much faith put in them because they're evangelical Christian and there isn't actually anything else to vouch for them. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. This is so upsetting. (laughs) The weight stuff. I just, (sighs) all of that is upsetting. I, didn't know anything about that, but what I had written down was that popular culture instills, indoctrinates, and reinforces a fear of the mm-hmm. other in every possible way that it can. Um, yeah. And, you know, if the other, the other can be anything from like communism to secular humanists to Muslims, to it doesn't, fat people, to fat people, like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, Everybody is the matter. other, like, and so, yeah. yeah, so I had written down just a short list, just kidding, it's very long, of <laughs> different ways in which this culture is talked about. And that's everything from bookstores like Lifeway, which mm-hmm. I have seen 
on a lot of different places to tapes mm-hmm. and videos like what you're talking about in addition to yeah. James Dobson's focus on the family he had a lot of daddy issues himself which I think we should talk about <laughs> at some point um and then tried to force them and project them onto all other fathers there's yeah. all of these tv shows and movies everything from veggie tales to passion of the christ to fireproof to duck dynasty which had 17 oh. million viewers uh Dude. the music uh amy grant dc talk newsboys to attire what would jesus do bracelets purity rings uh all of your camp t-shirts. Uh, and then, of mm-hmm. course, the groups. So Promise Keepers, Young Life, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And again, these are actually just a few of the things that she talks about in the book. But I would guess yeah. that if you're a white person in America, that you have probably had run-ins with more than one thing that I just named. And I think that that is oh, for sure. because even if you weren't raised evangelical, even if you weren't necessarily a part of this religious or cultural movement that it's everywhere in white culture yeah and it has come to be kind of what you were talking about earlier where people describe themselves as vaguely christian without having Mm -hmm. any connection to the theology and instead they're very connected to the culture that has come from that theology at some point but is no longer tethered to the theology Right. And the culture now, I think, of those kinds of loosely Christian uh, conservative individuals is misogyny, um, xenophobia, homophobia, homophobia, transphobia. It's all these phobias against other people. And and it is perceived to be theologically based, but it is actually culturally based in the fear that we described starting in the 1950s and 60s of communism, the other, the coming enemy, national security being tied to like our purity as a nation. And so it's, it's very painful to watch people do really hateful and I think evil things and pretend that they have the theology to back it up because they, they don't, but the culture (laughs) has lied them into believing that. Yeah. I mean, I think we see that as how opposed the evangelical movement has been to specific politicians that have been Mm -hmm. extremely well versed in theology. For example, Barack Obama, who could name passages by memory from the bible and yet didn't qualify as evangelical enough hmm i wonder why thinking about all of the (laughs) wonder Mm -hmm. why you don't think because his middle name was hussein (laughs) yeah was it because he wasn't white like i think hmm, maybe something to touch on Hmm. but yeah Hmm. it it comes up in a lot of different ways i also think there was a passage in the book where she says popular culture of evangelicals has subverted the authority of evangelical elites. And that's something that is a theme that comes up a lot where it's exactly what you just said. I don't mean to repeat anything, but essentially that the popular culture and those ideas are far more important than the actual theology that supposedly they are tied to. (laughs) Yeah. And I want to make a distinction because when I say like evangelicals don't actually believe their own theology anymore, I I think that's obviously a very blanket statement to make, but I would say that there are two, there's like a schism inside of um, evangelicalism now, which is like those people who 
are evangelical and they have like been entrenched in the ideals of patriarchy and toxic masculinity and they believe that that's like the way forward that protects whiteness and their way of life the best and they will use any amount of christian theology they can to back up those beliefs and then i think you do have another group of evangelicals who truly want to pursue what they believe to be the truth and they are interested in the genuine theology of their bible and pursue god um who have kind of gotten swept up into that bigger cultural wave um and, and I think a lot of the that smaller group of people who still identify as evangelical and really pursue God are often they are often not supportive of Donald Trump and that like Trumpism thing. The problem, though, that I think that they can't seem to process and and deal with is the fact that by being a part of the system of evangelicalism, they are actually supporting Donald Trump because that's the only place a system of based on oppression and patriarchy and uh, avoiding the other. That's the only place that you actually end up eventually. If you really follow those ideals down to the bottom. Um, And I, I think they want to have it somehow have it both ways, but I, I used to, I used to be that person. That's why I am like I speak with such confidence because I live that life of trying to be evangelical and also be like, but I I think gay people should be allowed to get married, and you can't have them both. Eventually, there comes a point I think when you have to choose, and that point for me was the twenty sixteen election. <laughs> but there are still evangelicals who like seem to struggle with this really, of course, deeply, and I I think that the way forward is to understand that the system that they find themselves a part of is the problem Mm -hmm. yeah I think that's a really good way of thinking about it and shine some light on the divisions between theology and culture that she talks a lot about throughout the book Mm -hmm. especially because she rarely talks about pastors who aren't more or less there to do speaking gigs like she doesn't really interview or talk about you know the pastor of xyz church in nevada or in Mm -hmm. where oklahoma it doesn't matter wherever um you know it's not because i think if you were to talk to the leaders of churches across america you would probably get a lot of different responses and you would Mm -hmm. probably hear a lot more of people who are concerned about the lack of theology and evangelical culture and how mm-hmm. just watching veggie tales as a kid doesn't necessarily <laughs> yeah. mean that you are uh, qualified to talk about the theology behind what you were supposed to have been learning. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think like to your point about, there is such differing thought. Like if you interviewed 300 pastors from evangelical churches across America, some of them would be for Donald Trump and some of them would not be. So it's not like you can say that all of them are supportive of him. But I think something you can say is that the vast majority of them still identify as Republican. Mm -hmm. And that for me is the bigger issue because we are watching the Republican party undermine our democracy at every turn and not just now undermine democracy but like turn a blind eye to violence within their own party that that tried to hurt them and other senators and that's the part that's like 
I'm actually more concerned now about you considering yourself Republican than whether or not you support Donald Trump because the two have become fully entwined and the bigger danger is like allowing the Republican Party to keep on using Trumpism and and pushing that as a way to like gain control. So I think that's the bigger... That's why I, I tend to feel more hostile, even though I understand that, like, not all evangelicals support Donald Trump. The vast majority of them do vote with their conscience, i.e. abortion, like against abortion. And that means voting for the Republican Party, even mm-hmm. though that logic doesn't seem to hold up when you're trading one loss of life for another yeah. loss of life. It's also... It's interesting that you describe it in those terms because I think there's a similar schism in the Republican Party happening right now, which mm-hmm. it's probably yes. not fair to say that it's happening in the secular part of the Republican Party because what does that even mean? Right. right? Evangelicalism yeah. has become so intertwined with Republicanism that you probably can't yeah. call it a secular schism. But what I mean is that there's a group of people who actually believe that they want fiscally responsible policy and are really driven by this myth Uh (laughs) of Reaganomics. And I do call it a myth because it has been proven to not be correct. And then there's a second group who I would say is the Mitch McConnell group, which is Mm. just the group that frankly wants power and wants to be in power as long as possible. And those people are mostly the representatives, not necessarily the voters. I think the voters are more the first group, but yet the people they've elected, for example, Mitch McConnell has Mm -hmm. not at all carried out the policies that, for example, evangelicals Mm -hmm. wanted to see. And he's not motivated to ever do that. What he's most motivated to do is to stay in power as long as possible, to obstruct democratic policy as much as possible, because the modern Republican Party is not Mm -hmm. a governing body. They do not have an agenda that they're really looking to carry out. They're mostly just working to obstruct democratic agendas and to maintain the status quo or revert back to a status quo of the 1950s as much as they possibly can. Right. Like, I think the point is if they prevent progress, so they prevent people from having better access, access to social programs, for example then it's much easier to just stop that from happening and and keep everyone kind of miserable than to give them something that helps and try to take it away again. Right. So their best way to stay in power and to continue having money from lobbyists and their super PACs flowing in is to protect the wealthiest groups in America by keeping the, the most disenfranchised and vulnerable groups as oppressed as possible. And so their best strategy to do that is, you're right, to block democratic agendas versus having their own. Like, their agenda now is to create as much obstruction as possible to progress, because that is the way that they have the best path towards remaining in power. Um, if they yeah. keep people uneducated and keep them in poverty and and do these things that we've seen play out in our country and like pit races against each other, then they have the best shot to remain. Yeah. And oh I think God, I just got like a wave of fury. So like I want to like 
<laughs> solid in your face. Burn my house to the ground. <laughs> well, yeah, I think when we look back on the Trump years, ugh, hate saying that. Uh, when we look back <laughs> at Trump's term, McConnell's greatest accomplishments will be the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which tried to kneecap Obamacare and created huge tax cuts for very wealthy people and his work on nominating and confirming as many judges as possible. Because if you have more conservative judges interpreting the law, then you can make the law seem more conservative than it is, right? So it may Mm -hmm. be hard to take away progressive wins when they've been put into law, but it is less hard to interpret them in a conservative way by affirming, Mm -hmm. or sorry, confirming these judges. Yeah, and I, oh, I was going to say, one of the things that makes me sad when I watch evangelicals operate in the political sphere is that they put so much faith in the morality of people like Mitch McConnell and Ted Cruz and, and Josh. Holly. Did I just make that name? I was like, wait, who are you talking about? Who are you talking about? Oh my God, I'm having a stroke. (laughs) Oh my God. I combined his name with a singer's last name. Anyway, he's not that cool. Um, they put a lot of faith in the morality of these people and yet they believe that people like Barack Obama Mm -hmm. or I guess Joe Biden now are devoid of morality, which is so mind bending to me. It's like, clearly these men are not devoid of morality. If you just look at their families alone and the success they've had with like keeping relationships together, you should be able to see that they are not devoid of morality. But what disturbs me is the inability for um conservatives to it's like the all or nothing thinking whereas i feel like progressives and liberals are much better at realizing that all politicians have a somewhat dubious agenda and there is no politician who you can believe like is going to save you (laughs) and daddy joe biden is not going to swoop in and save us like as much as i want to believe yeah like oh please please save us but he's not yeah, I feel very uncomfortable with the prospect that any person is perfect because I don't think any of us are. And I think most people yeah. are complex and motivated by complex motivations and ideologies that mm-hmm. have been socialized into us. And so my view of morality is not nearly as black and white as that. And I think that if you're sitting back saying, well, my guy is better than your guy, then you're probably missing out on the fact that both of them are humans and both of them have pros and cons and both of them have made mistakes. But it's also fair to say that if your policy and agenda or your most of the if your policy and agenda is making life worse for people, then that's a reason to not vote for someone and to not support someone. Or if you are most of the time being terrible to other people or promoting terrible ideas, then that's also a reason to not vote for people. I'm Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and I think like one of the points you're making is that Republicans wanted and evangelicals wanted you to support and vote for Trump because Trump, claimed to be christian Mm -hmm. but they refuse to support and throw their weight behind any of the 
Democratic politicians like Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, and Barack Obama, who have demonstrated Christian moral ideals. Maybe Hillary Clinton a little bit less because there is some dubiousness there, but Barack Obama is like a fucking stand-up dude. <laughs> like, find me one scandal in his life. There aren't any. He is a good person, and he's not as progressive as I would like him to be, obviously. Again, no one is perfect, but the fact that they are telling people to vote for one man because he pretends to believe something but refuse to to vote for people who have demonstrated their beliefs it, that is the biggest red flag to me of a belief system like you are dismissing actual evidence in the face of the performance that you are most attracted to which as we've discussed is that aggressive masculine i tell it like it is thing and the performer you're most attracted to. Because the reason yeah. the Obama administration did not have a ton of notable scandals, or really any notable scandals aside from him wearing a tan suit that one time, tan suit. <laughs> is because he couldn't afford to. Because as a yes. black man who is running the country, he couldn't afford to have made the kinds of mistakes that Trump did in his campaigning and still be reelected. That just would not ever have yeah. happened. Yes, I remember I saw a photo of Barack Obama back in like 2000 and it, it, I think it was after his election. So probably like 2009. So I was like a senior in high school at that point and he was smoking a cigarette. And that to me was like devastating. I was like, that is so disappointing. How could anyone be so bad that they would smoke a cigarette? Like that's how indoctrinated <laughs> into evangelicalism I was where I was like, smoking is a sin i'm so disappointed that our president is smoking a cigarette my <laughs> like, body is damn. a hashtag temple like, <laughs> literally like and so i bring that up only to point out like that is where the bar used to be of like a a person evangelical or otherwise who was like wow smoking is bad and then we've got donald trump who's like grab him by the pussy and people are applauding like how it, did we go from that to that but i also think it's that was the bar for Barack Obama because he was Barack Obama. This is the bar yeah. for this straight white Trump man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> straight white, straight man. white Trump. Can that be like a disgusting cocktail straight that's like Trump. egg white and milk and gin? Straight white Trump. Oh my Trump. god. <laughs> it would just be someone else's puke. Um so <laughs> Trump is a straight white man, and so he's judged by different standards, which is what I was trying to get out, but yes. my mind is clearly yes. not working well enough well, today. And I think something that you see happen, like if Barack Obama had been married three times, I think Donald Trump's been married three times, and had, you know, two divorces and kids from with multiple women, etc., obviously he would never have been elected. But instead of that being something that Trump had to overcome as like, oh yeah, some past blah, 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 I think it actually bolstered his image of like a virile man like he could tr attract multiple women and when they stopped pleasing his sexual needs he bounced and Which he found a younger model because like, he's in his 70s so no he didn't <laughs> <laughs> yeah like that is also, the one word you know that what? we can say confidently does not describe him <laughs> not apply to him but i think it it gave that impression to the other white evangelical men who are like watching and maybe throwing evangelical in there isn't fair but definitely white men 
seeing another white man who's had the success of multiple relationships success quote unquote it's they were all failures but like to to if you're looking at it that way like oh you got more than one woman it's like unfortunately i think that lended him more credibility than otherwise which in my brain is like then how do we win this is impossible <laughs> like <laughs> it's pretty upsetting <laughs> yeah I do have one, like, one final thing I want to say. First is that I'm going to reiterate the point that we made um, at the beginning of this podcast when we talked about, or at the beginning of, like, this book, that Kristen's overall point and what her book builds to is the fact that evangelicalism did not fall apart, lose its way, and stumble into Trump and this is like the disaster that happened as evangelicalism fell. Her argument is that based on the theology and the belief system in patriarchal authority, submissive femininity, whiteness as the peak, Donald Trump was the ultimate pinnacle of evangelicalism. It built to his presidency and this is the a triumph of evangelicalism. So that really helped me clarify my disappointment and like confusion when it came to like why evangelicals supported him in mass. And it, it explains that this is not accidental or that they held their nose to vote for him or, or, or abandoned their belief system, but rather he was the best choice for the belief system that they hold, which yes. is really devastating, honestly, to think. At the end of one um, chapter, sorry, I'm interrupting you. Oh, go, go, go ahead. At, at the end of one chapter, she actually pulled a quote from a pastor, and I honestly can't remember who it is, but I will. It's okay. It, it's okay. So he said that at the time of the 2016 election, evangelicals were looking for the toughest son of a you-know-what they could find as the candidate, which yes. is hilarious in two ways. Number one, you are that's the only qualification. Like, are you joking? But number two, you're saying you want the toughest person and you can't even say son of a bitch? Like, are you joking? <laughs> Seriously? And you went with a guy who claimed bone spurs to get out of serving in the military. Good For job. Real. You got the toughest. What like, about what him is actually tough? It's just tough at ridiculous. All. Um, agreed. And the final thing that I wanted to say for all of us who have read this book or are grappling with these themes and feeling, as I feel, very, like, unable to fight against this tide, the last two sentences of Kristen's book say, appreciating how this ideology developed over time is also essential for those who wish to dismantle it. What was once done might also be undone. Uh, I have this habit of when I read a book after the first chapter or so, I usually flip to the end and read the last sentence. Um, but I, I do it because it usually helps me know, is this book going to hurt me or help me? And when I flipped to the end and read that, I knew that like Kristen's work understands the devastation that a lot of us feel of like, how do I fix this? And while she can't provide, like, an answer of, like, this is how we fix it, she is able to say, like, the more we understand about it, the better chance we have of making it better. And that gives me a lot of hope 
when dealing with a topic that is as personal and painful and also affects our country so deeply right now. So I would say 10 of 10, this was an excellent, excellent read. <laughs> Hard to get through, but I loved it. I love how we didn't talk about our rating system, so I was going to give it five stars <laughs> out of five stars. <laughs> 10 out of five. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> so I just... Stars think, is much better. I think uh, we should just keep separate rating systems so we can just do whatever. <gasps> yes. Every time Every let's time rate it on a different, different scale. <laughs> Yes. Two thumbs up. <laughs> yes. 12 notches on the belt this time. <laughs> I love it. That is perfect. Uh, well, next time we are going to be talking about the psychopath test by John Ronson. And I cannot tell you how many yes. times I have fucked up his name by saying Ron Johnson, because to me that <laughs> sounds like it's what it's supposed to be. And I know this is an actual John person, Ronson. so it's not like a made yeah. up character. It's a real guy. I know. Well, whatever. He is a, a British journalist. So this is, this is a great book. I'm very excited for it. And although he is a white man, we have plans for a white man. <laughs> we have plans for non-white authors and uh, a lot of women as well, because we want to make sure we are focusing on other voices in the discourse. Especially in nonfiction, because there are yeah. a lot of topics that are sometimes better covered by people who have different backgrounds than white people. Uh, yeah, I think like obviously their experiences are different, and I think most of the education I had came from a white perspective, uh, a white male perspective. So any ability to bring another voice into the mix is hugely important. So absolutely, that's the plan. Cool. Well, join us next time. <laughs> we can't wait to talk more about the psychopath test. Yeah, we can't wait to read them so that you don't have to, unless you want to. <laughs> 